from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Gay Fantasia on American themes or an American Fantasia on gay themes. Playwright Paul Rudnick and New York Times theater critic Jesse Green. Plus... I thought of a palm chart. Barry Blitt describes one of his great New Yorker magazine covers. In the studio, I've got screenwriter and off-Broadway comedy playwright Paul Rudnick over here, and Jesse Green, the co-chief theater critic of the New York Times. Jesse wrote an article in the Times headlined, Will the Old Gay Play Have Something New to Say? And amid this sudden glut of revivals of gay theme plays in New York, it was about how gay characters and themes have evolved on the stage and how they do or don't hold up a generation or two or three later. Jesse and Paul, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt. So we're going to talk about a bunch of the the plays, especially from the 80s and 90s that you wrote about, Jesse, uh, in your article. But let's go back. Uh, (laughs) Before there were plays overtly about gayness, there were obviously gay playwrights writing what were certainly since have been regarded as elliptically, cryptically gay plays uh, like – uh, Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire, uh, or Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, or Edward Albee's uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, it's the first time I remember hearing as a child, like, no, that's really about homosexuals, Kurt. He will strike you down from the grave. That's I know he right. will. I, I know His he estate will. will go after <laughs> I know. I know he will. So, and, and Williams didn't like the idea of, of writing for a gay audience particularly. Either, that was a less credible position. Yeah. <laughs> so... All be objecting to that, uh, Williams not wanting to be considered a gay playwright. Was that legitimate? Was it a function of when they were writing? Both what? There was a lot of gay baiting that went on back then because Albie and Tennessee Williams, two of the great iconic American playwrights, were often criticized and accused of disguising gay characters. At the time. At the time. And so also, remember, the cost of being openly gay then was unthinkable. They would not have had the careers they had. They would not have had any careers at all. Were, Were there advantages, do you think, for writers not being able to deal explicitly with gay themes? Was that an interesting constraint in the 1940s and 50s? I think that's kind of a false perspective because it somehow says, ah, there were more universal themes before people were writing about more yeah. marginalized yeah. lives. So I think that's kind of unfair. And also, especially in the case of Williams, it was interesting the way he managed to work gay characters and especially in something like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof so that they're clearly these guys did want to write about these right. topics, but it was forbidden. So I can't think of it as an actual helpful constraint. Yeah. I I both agree with that and disagree with that, and and you're a working playwright, so you should know. But there is a way in which I think all writers thrive under constraints, Uh, any kind of constraint, whether it's word length or how long your play can be or how many sets you have money for in this Or the Nazis occupying Paris. I mean, that is a thing, right? As a good example. So you could argue that 
had some of these playwrights been free to say everything they wanted right. in exactly the form they wanted, they may not have found such fabulous workarounds. But again, you would have to say, oh, gee, would August Wilson have been better off had he been forced <laughs> to write about white people? You know, I that think he'd have been better off if he'd been forced to write about gay people. I just think there that, that was his real metier. Um, I think you're joking. Yes, I, I, I am. <laughs> um, but you see, on radio, like online, uh, deadpan humor doesn't always come across as Noted. deadpan humor. Um, so let's move forward in time to the 60s and especially the 80s and 90s. I want to go through a few of these and talk about which ones you like more and less, uh, how they struck you when you first saw them, how well you think they hold up now. And we've got, for many of them, clips from the movie adaptation so the audience can play along at home. <laughs> Very good. Um, so... Boys in the Band, written by Mart Crowley, uh, who's still alive, by the way, and first staged in 1968. Jesse, give the listeners, if you would, a brief synopsis, introduction to this classic. A bunch of extremely unhappy gay men uh, meet for a party in which they play a devastating game and basically reveal the emptiness and uh, tragedy of gay life. Do you think that's fair, Paul? <laughs> it's interesting. I think it is completely valid, but I would also say that my early experience of that play and of the movie, which I thought probably how I first uh, saw it, was uh, probably at like a college film society. I thought of it as far more joyous than that, that I think it is absolutely true that it is a, a kind of a tragic vision. It's also a very funny play, very smart, and doesn't advocate for the tragic vision. I think by the end of it, it says, no, we have to stop hating ourselves. So that I th sometimes it gets a, an unfortunate rap as being anti-gay, which it isn't. Let's uh, listen to a, a clip from Boys in the Band. Hi, darling. Connie Catherall. I'm Mary. Don't ask. Hello, Emery. Put that in the kitchen. Okay. Hello, Emery. Who is this exotic woman over here? My dear, I thought you'd perished. Where have you been hiding your classically chiseled features? I don't live in the city anymore. Emery, where's your gift? It's arriving later. Wow. The, the split between the Straits and the Marys was already so well established. And by that, we mean what, Jesse? The uh, straight-acting gays and the effeminate-acting gays. Um, it that that was interesting. I remember seeing it, and it was the first explicitly gay anything I'd ever been aware of. It terrified me. I saw the movie first, and uh, if I had been out of the closet, it would have scared me back into it. I agree with Paul that it's not endorsing anything anti-gay, but it is presenting such a tragic picture of the current state of affairs, probably fairly accurately right. at that, that it, it wasn't exactly, you know, welcome and rainbow flags. Right. How did it play to gay audiences and straight audiences at the time in the late 60s and early 70s? Oh, well, it was an enormous success, both the play and the movie, and they were considered explosive and scandalous, but it was very highly praised and ran for quite a while. So there was a slight sense of a forbidden glimpse at a subculture. On the other hand, because I think it was written by a gay man and written very knowledgeably and wisely, that it wasn't just a lurid peak. There was really a sense of, okay, these lives exist, take a look. Uh, so it was a breakthrough, and you can't, I, I always think that can't be diminished, that I right. think Mark Crowley did something that was, especially at the time, incredibly brave. And lastly, because I know it's going to be revived next season, directed by Ryan Murphy, I believe, or at least produced uh, by him. Directed by Joe Mantello. Oh, Joe Mantello, on Broadway. produced by Ryan, yeah, Ryan Murphy. exactly. Ryan Murphy, who did direct the, uh, the HBO version of The Normal Heart, is someone who includes massive amounts of gay, straight characters, you name it. So, next, let's talk about Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy, 
Paul, you were a fan. Oh, enormously so. That was a, it's and was and is a magnificent play, and is being given from everything I've heard a top notch revival starring Michael Urie, who is just a world class actor. And so I think uh, I mean I remember Harvey starring in it, which was so. Did magnetic. you see it when you were a young man? I was. I did indeed. And nineteen eighty one. Yeah, I adored it because. Both because it was wonderful to see gay material on stage, but even more so because it's such a terrific play and was so funny and so beautifully performed. uh, Tell the listeners the basic idea of Torchsong. Torchsong was, I think, taken somewhat from from Harvey's own life. It was about a drag queen making his way in the world and his romantic life, his relationship with a bisexual partner, and ultimately in the third act with his mother, who was not forgiving and not accepting. So it becomes quite explosive by the end. But it was a very wonderfully positive portrait of gay lives and of this outsized, irrepressible, irresistible guy. Right. And yet still a portrait of gay lives that were struggling with basic identity questions. Uh, This would gradually change so that gay characters could appear without having to argue their right to exist or to be out of the closet. But at this time, Firestein really zeroed in on those issues. I think my biggest problem is being young and beautiful. It's my biggest problem because I've never been young and beautiful. Oh, I've been beautiful. God knows I've been young, but never the twain have met. Not so as anyone would notice anyway. You know, a shrink acquaintance of mine believes this to be the root of my attraction to a class of men most subtly described as old and ugly. I think he's underestimating my wheedles. See, an ugly person who goes after a pretty person gets nothing but trouble. But a pretty person who goes after an ugly person gets at least cab fare. Now, I ain't saying I never fell for a pretty face. But when les gens sont faits, Give me a toad with a pot of gold and I'll give you three meals a day. Because, honeys, ain't no such thing as a toad when the lights go down. It's either feast or famine. It's the daylight you got to watch out for. Well, face it, a thing of beauty is a joy till sunrise. <laughs> that is uh, Harvey Firestein, of course, in the film adaptation of Torch Song Trilogy. Uh, Jesse, are you old enough to have seen it when it was playing the first time? I saw it when it was put together as the trilogy. It had originally been done as a series of one acts off-off-Broadway at La Mama and elsewhere, and then was put together uh, as a one-evening, very long event. Do you expect, and again, being reminded of it from that clip we just watched and heard, that it will hold up and be perfectly relevant in 2017-18? Oh, absolutely, because I think it was interesting how prescient a lot of, because Harvey and that play just deals with the possibility of gay marriage, gay adoption, how you create a family. Really? So, yep. And that play also won the Tony for Best Play, if Also, it's, it's so character-based. It's really about... This guy, this entertaining, yeah. lovable yeah, guy. And, and, and the relationship between him and his mother, which is, you know, will that ever not be topical? So it seems to me, tell me if I'm completely wrong about this, but that that period, that dozen years, uh, are a kind of continental divide in, in gay culture, gay theater, uh, suddenly out, suddenly the horrors of AIDS. I mean, that that was... The before and after moment, is that true, fair? Well, AIDS certainly was the dividing line for many things in gay life, including what happened to gay theater. 
Uh, I mean, of course, using the phrase gay theater or gay plays has, right. <laughs> is a problem in itself. Right. And often redundant. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps in your case. <laughs> you had it in your headline. I am not responsible for my headline. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way AIDS functioned in the larger questions of gay life, a terrible tragedy that affected pretty much everyone in the community one way or another, um, but also, uh, sad to say, was the first thing that fully... Uh, convinced non-gay people that there were real lives worth mourning and treasuring behind, you know, those shadowy figures they had heard about for years. And so through plays about AIDS, the doors came to open for other plays. But at the time we're talking about, that was just beginning to happen with plays like The Normal Heart and uh, Falsettos. and uh, As is. And Jeffrey. And Jeffrey. We're next going to Larry Kramer's play uh, The Normal Heart, uh, 1985, um, Paul. It was shattering and it was important on so many levels because at that time in the early years of the AIDS crisis, the media was not covering any of it. There was no source of information. And that and play, it's really early years. It came yeah. out in 1985. I mean, the first New York Times article was 1982, I believe. Exactly. And even that was relatively minor. There was an electricity when you went to see that because... Nobody knew what was going on. There were certainly no medical answers, and there were no there was no government attention whatsoever. So it was making a difference on so many wow. levels. And I think what, especially the most recent revival revealed, although this was pretty much acknowledged already, it's also a terrific play. It really works. It cooks. And here is a clip from the film adaptation of The Normal Heart, Mark Ruffalo starring. I am beginning to think that you and your straight world are our enemy. I am furious with you. And every goddamn doctor who made me feel it was sick to love a man. I am trying to understand why nobody gives a shit that we're dying! Five million dollars for a house we can't even get 27 cents from the city? I know 43 guys who have died and you say it's my cause, not yours? You still think I'm sick? I simply cannot allow it for one single second longer. I will not speak to you again until you accept me as your equal, your healthy equal, your brother. One of the signal tones of the normal heart is the rage. That represents a a perfect meeting of playwright and topic at a particular time, Larry Kramer. Uh, Who was a a, a big, loud uh, activist. And remains so. And founded uh, Gay Men's Health Crisis and ACT UP uh, before being kind of pushed to the sidelines of both of them because of his large personality, shall we say. But in this play, there was no one to push him aside. And he successfully channeled a kind of biblical rage into a dramatic form that still holds up. In fact, I think that's what actually continues to make it viable as a play had it been less political, I don't think it would continue to hold up. And and what about the fact that AIDS can now be managed very differently than we had any idea back then that it ever would be or could be? Does that change dramatically the way that that play is watched today? I, well, see, I find it irritating, to say the least, when people say, oh, it's dated. And I think, first of all, AIDS is is still prevalent all over the world, and thank God it's dated to the extent it has. And aside from that, the minute you say, oh, a play was set in an earlier age, therefore we should have no interest in it, well, let's erase all of Shakespeare then. But um, what I've experienced is when younger audiences experience these plays, they've thankfully not had to live through that particular tragedy. 
But they are fascinated, and it is also historical information for them, right. and they had no idea. Because it's like a war movie made during the war. It is a yep. war movie. That's exactly yeah. right. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, talk some more about groundbreaking theater, including, of course, Tony Kushner's Angels in America. That'll be in Act Two after this brief intermission on Studio 360. I'm in the studio with the playwright Paul Rudnick and the New York Times theater critic Jesse Green. We're talking about some of the best-known gay-themed plays from the 1980s and 90s and how they hold up today. Before the break, we talked about Boys in the Band and Torch Song Trilogy and The Normal Heart. So now let's talk about Tony Kushner's great Angels in America, which appeared in the early 1990s and then in the early aughts became an HBO miniseries. For people who missed it or have forgotten Paul. <laughs> Summarize that, Paul. Oh, Summar- Summar- <laughs> what, what is Tony Kushner's uh, play about? Well, all you need to basically know is it's a masterwork. It's one of the truly great American plays, and it's uh, an epic. I th- What was the... Uh, the, the subtitle that Tony uh, uh, put Gay Fantasia on American Themes, themes. or An American Fantasia on Gay Themes. Yes, because it was set in the age of AIDS with wild flights of fantasy and beyond, that it involves everyone from Roy Cohn to Ethel Rosenberg to the lives of a central gay couple, one of whom is suffering quite terribly from AIDS and the other whom is running away from him. So it's both a very personal story and deeply emotional, and it's about everyone and everything. I saw an angel weeks ago. I did. I saw her. I did. I'm not insane. I didn't say you were. I saw an angel. That's insane. Well, it's... Insane, but I'm not insane. But then why did I do this to myself? Because I have been driven insane by your son and by that lying... Because ever since she arrived, ever since... I have been consumed by this ice-cold razor blade terror that just shouts and shouts, keep moving, run, and I've run myself into the ground. Right where she said I'd eventually be. Really, she seems so real. That's Justin Kirk and Meryl Streep in Mike Nichols' adaptation of Angels in America. Uh, Did you both see the, the play when it opened on Broadway in 1993? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't not see it. It really was thrilling. And it was also the introduction of this, of the genius that is Tony Kushner, so that you got both the the, the action of the play and also the, the lyricism and the poetry and the humor, everything else that you thought, oh, my God, this is a major writer who's arrived in full flower. So it was beyond an event. I mean, I don't think there's, there is, not, I, I can't imagine anything that's equaled it in the years since. Right. I had seen an early version of it in San Francisco where it was done at the Eureka Theater, I believe. And uh, it was done on two nights, and I think it ran to about 400 hours. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was not yet cut down to its very modest eight-hour length or whatever it played on Broadway in two evenings. And it wasn't finished, but you knew that something, uh, uh, well, as Paul said, a new voice, uh, new to most of us, uh, had emerged, but also a, a way of looking at the content that had been bubbling around in a lot of the plays that we'd been 
talking about, uh, reorganized uh, toward a different purpose and with an enormous vision that went way beyond AIDS and gayness uh, to encompass really the His whole modern history, modern history, and 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 future history because. Looked at now, I find myself very drawn to the part of the story, and amazingly, it's just one part of the story, that is about the future of the planet. So we all agree it's the great play of its era? Oh, it's that good. Yeah, yeah. I know. I do and not know. a great gay play, but it's a oh, great it is a great play. gay play. Yeah, it's both. <laughs> I, 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 I imagine that Tony Christian would insist on that as well, yeah. but that it certainly is in the canon. You know, when you talk about Death of a Salesman yes. and Streetcar Named Desire, you put Angels in America right up there. And interestingly, compared to uh, most of the other plays, all the other plays I guess we've been talking about, it is not thoroughly realistic. It has these poetic flights of fancy and angels and dead people and so forth. Uh, does that make it less dated? Yeah, it's not dated in the slightest because even though a lot of it is a particularly specific attack on Reagan in those years, that doesn't date either when you look at, okay, how do those years inform what's happening right now? Right. And the central story, which is about betrayal of one character for his lover and his having to figure out how to make his life okay after he betrays his lover, that's another Pretty story universal. that will never yes. never go away. Um, Paul. Yeah? Let's look at one of uh, your best-known plays, Uh-oh. previously mentioned, uh, Jeffrey. Here is a clip from the movie. I mean, look at us. And look at how happy we are. Don't we make you want to fall in love? Sometimes I think we should be on a brochure for middle America. Then everyone can say, oh, look, a wholesome gay couple. Oh, excuse me. You two are not wholesome. You're a decorator. Excuse me, an interior designer. And he's a dancer. You two are like Martha Stewart and Ann Miller. Which, believe me, I prefer. I, I just hate that gay role models are supposed to be just like straight people. As if even straight people are like that. That is so true. Oh, thank God, Paul. Thank God for that play. Really, oh, I remember. Thank you. you know, I, in the Sir midst Patrick of, Stewart and a couple of other actors whose names you probably know. Uh, that was Stephen Weber and Brian. That Brian originated that role in the original production. But Paul, you're interrupting your own compliment. Uh, go. Keep going. <laughs> we had the ID. We had the ID. Go. <laughs> uh, Gosh, you know, in the midst of all these plays we've been talking about, not a one of them a comedy, mind you, and also in the midst of a time of terrible sadness came a play which was an AIDS comedy, possibly? Can we call it that? I mean, I don't know if you ever called it that, but something that— It's a genre. <laughs> now. <laughs> well, it's a genre true. of one. I, I was yeah, going to say. Uh, that really uh, did one of the things that theater can and should do, and it was something no one else was, I want to say, daring to do. I don't know if it felt daring to you, though. It was only possible because of plays like The Normal Heart, because the subject matter had been treated with the weight that it deserved— but I was a comic writer, and I, for a while I thought maybe there was no way into this material and into this subject, but I couldn't help myself because all the people around me were so funny. And before there were any medical possibilities, a sense of humor was kind of the only weapon anyone had. So now, are gay characters being more mainstreamed in the fact that they're gay uh, becoming secondary in plays? To a certain extent, but what's I think there's one funny thing that's kind of going on in the theater right at the moment, which is because of gay marriage being legalized, which is a big win for the LGBTQ world, it makes gay people no longer underdogs. And a lot of writers have been wrestling with, okay, we can now write plays about the troubles of gay marriage and gay relationships, which seems a little beside the point after you've had that particular victory. So it's an interesting challenge. But there's still a sense, especially when you leave the coasts, 
yeah. that if you have a play where there's a central gay character, where there is a LGBTQ hero, heroine, you name it, that will still be questionable. That will be seen as a niche item. That, yes, you could have still have plenty of gay best friends and gay aunts and uncles, but if it's if it means it, it will still be produced with, without the frequency of, uh, of August Osage County, which is a fantastic play. But it's, uh, yeah, it's still, there could still be marginalized things going on. But on the other hand, you have uh, the surprising success of a musical like Fun Home, which is the story of a young lesbian discovering uh, her identity. And this is a, a musical that not only succeeded on Broadway, but is now doing very well on the road. So go figure that one out. Well, I was just going to ask about that. And, and, and I think of the play Indecent. Suddenly you have lesbian stars, characters uh, on Broadway. Um, but only in the last few years. Why, why, why such a lag uh, in terms of uh, gender? Oh, exactly, because also Lisa Crone, who did the, the book and lyrics and won Tony's, I think, for both on Fun Home, is a superb writer who had wonderful solo shows and a, another great play on Broadway called Well that she appeared in. So, yeah, I think there is a lag because I think the culture, also because AIDS was seen as affecting gay men directly, there was an, a natural output More there. dramatic. Yeah. Do we think, if we regathered here in, in 25 years, that we wouldn't look back at this age of the gay play as a kind of specific golden age, that like 1970 to 2000 will be a period of the great gay theater, partly as a result of dealing with AIDS? Yeah, I think there was a natural flowering that that is indisputable, that you often have art in response to a, crisis, a world crisis. And also because the art was very restricted at that time, there were not a lot of movies that dealt with AIDS and no TV shows or very few. Right. So that, yeah, that and theater also because it was affecting the theatrical community so immediately, yeah, I think those plays will be... Um, and pre and post legal gay marriage seems to me yeah, to be a yeah. huge cultural thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you're right that we will be able to see this discrete portion of time in a certain way. And perhaps... What will happen is that gay playwrights, whether or not they're writing about gay characters, will have their work just uh, sort of flowing into the mainstream of all works at that time. And, you know, one day, I think you're right, we will look back at this as a time when plays about gay characters flourished uh, because gay people were not flourishing elsewhere. Uh, Jesse Green and Paul Rudnick, uh, this has been uh, deeply illuminating and enlightening and entertaining for me. So thank you both. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. You're a good straight guy. I do my best. (laughs) You can judge for yourself how some of these plays we've been talking about stand up decades after they were written. Torch Song has had an off-Broadway revival that's about to end. But then Angels in America begins performances on Broadway in February and Boys in the Band comes to Broadway in April. You can find out more about all of these productions at our website, pri.org slash studio360. That's pri.org slash studio360. As Paul and Jesse were just saying, while gay men became more central on stage in in big-time theater beginning the last few decades, lesbian characters, not so much. That changed dramatically a couple of years ago, as we were also just saying, with the Broadway run of the terrific musical Fun Home, which won five Tonys, including Best Musical. 
The show is based on a graphic memoir by Alison Bechtel about her own upbringing, growing up as a lesbian in a funeral home in rural Pennsylvania. And that was adapted for the stage by the composer Janine Tesori and the writer Lisa Crone, who, by the way, were the first female writing team ever to win a Tony for Best Original Score. We'll be hearing from both of them. This is Janine Tesori. This is going to be changing my major. Um, Just a a caveat that I'm a a writer who sings-ish, so I will do my my best. What happened last night? Are you really here? Joan, 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 Joan. Hi, Joan, don't wake up, Joan. Oh, my God, last night. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, last night. I got so excited, I was too enthusiastic. Thank you for not laughing. Well, you laughed a little bit at one point when I was touching you and said I might lose consciousness, which you said was adorable, and I just have to trust... I think the idea of this song was some, some, a subset of how I felt and how Lisa felt, and heightened by the sense that what Lisa told me, uh, you know, as a, a gay woman, that she wasn't afforded in adolescence, that she didn't have that time walking down the hall with a girlfriend or, or pen and inking notes or um, hearts into her, her notebooks. And so what happened was an unbelievably goofy and really hysterical combination of a first-time love and romance and sex that has been building and building to this moment, which was, you know, right for comedy. And Joan's crazy brown eyes. Joan, I feel like Hercules. Oh, God, that sounds ridiculous. Just keep on sleeping through this, and I'll work on calming down. So by the time... Intuitively, both Janine and I felt from the beginning like Fun Home actually would be a good musical is that... I think part of the power of that book is that there's this undercurrent of aching emotion that runs through that book. And it's a, it's a story about uh, people who are really checked out and emotionally disconnected, and yet they're just aching with feelings they can't understand or acknowledge or express. And I think m- music is a way to show people having that exact experience. Someone just came in the door Like no one I ever saw before I feel, I feel, I don't know where you came from, I wish I did, I feel so dumb, I feel. You know, Lisa's in- incredibly brave, she she has been doing things in theater in downtown for years, and she said, um, you'll see, you'll see, you, they can't kiss, you'll see. And I didn't understand what that meant. And what she meant was that they would be laughed at. The audience wouldn't be laughing with them, that they would be laughing at them. And she didn't realize, and I think it's to her great joy, that that's just not the case at all. I think Fun Home is, has come to Broadway when there's been this sort of accretion of images of GLBT people, I think, that's been built over decades by artists and by activists and through political change. And I think that it sort of reached this moment where there's enough of a framework there that audiences that a few years ago wouldn't necessarily have been able to, they wouldn't have felt that they could connect or identify with these characters, um, are having no trouble doing that. If there's anything that I really hope that the success of Fun Home does is to encourage producers to look at young women playwrights 
and composers and lyricists and take a chance on them based on their potential. That's Lisa Crone, who wrote the book and lyrics for the musical Fun Home. We also heard from Janine Tesori, who composed the music. When Alison Bechtel was in our studio, she talked about what led her back in the early 1980s to launch her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For. I needed to see some kind of reflection of myself. I didn't see in the broader culture any images of women who looked like me or my friends. And I think that we we all just really need to see some kind of reflection of ourselves or something goes a little wrong. So it's fitting that three decades after she rendered lesbians visible in one medium, in print, somebody else would use her characters to do that in the theater on Broadway. And it has left Bechtel kind of awestruck. It is extremely surreal and, in this case, very, very wonderful. The play is brilliant. It could easily not have been. You know, it could have been not a good play, but I I feel so lucky that they took this really intimate material of my life and stayed very true to it. That story was produced by Zoe Saunders. Thanks to New York Public Radio and John Schaefer's podcast Soundcheck for the interviews with Lisa Crone. Alison Bechtel is just one of my favorite diminutive and bespectacled comic artists. Sometimes you'll do a drawing and oh, that doesn't look enough like Hillary and you draw it a second time. The second time it looks more like her. Coming up. New Yorker illustrator Barry Blitt talks about his compulsion to keep redrawing. But the first time there was some magic or, or discovery in the actual line work, and it's a better drawing, and that's the one you use. Why there's more to getting it right than getting just the likeness right. That's next in Studio 360. Studio 360. I am a big fan of illustration in magazines, newspapers, wherever. And Barry Blitt is one of my favorite illustrators. When I was editing Spy Magazine 25 years ago, I loved commissioning him to create these witty and charming watercolor and ink pictures. And since then, Barry has become one of the main cover artists for The New Yorker. Even though Barry contributed to Spy and I was a New Yorker staff writer for a few years in the 90s, we'd never actually met. Since he's just published a beautiful coffee table book retrospective of his greatest hits, we decided that was a good pretext for finally getting together. Barry's from Canada, but he lives and works in a house in a bucolic little town in northwest Connecticut, about a two-hour drive north of New York City. Turning off the highway, my producers and I drove down this winding dirt road through the woods, 
And at the top of a little hill is the home of Barry Blitt, which also happens to be the former home, back in the 1950s, of Arthur Miller. Hello, Barry Blitt. Kurt Anderson here. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Please come in. Thank you. Past the kitchen and living room, Barry walked us to the back of his house. This is a beautiful little studio with a big drawing desk that looks, if I were the production designer for a movie about a uh, an artist or an illustrator, this is how I would prop it. It looks perfect. I mean... One can't help that sort of thing, I guess. And, and your, your drawing board is a drawing board, and I see paintbrushes and pens and ink, and on these shelves, just dozens of, of bottles of... Inks and paints, or mostly inks? Inks and watercolors. Here's an old-fashioned pen with an old-fashioned nib. What do you use? I, I prefer old-timey. I use these guys to draw with. These are croquill pens. They, they really are old-timey, so it's just a, it's a, it's a yeah. stick with a right. metal nib. That's the technical name for it, yes, yeah. stick with nib. Oh, and, you really, and you dip it in ink. Yeah, you dip it in ink. After he finishes with the pen and ink, he usually goes over it in watercolor. And then once that dries, Barry scans it onto his computer and sends it off to the client. But the New Yorker still prefers the old school method, physical delivery of the actual paper work of art, sometimes fetched by a messenger they dispatch from New York City. As the New Yorker has asked for more topical stuff, my deadlines have Sometimes they're only a few hours. So Is I, that right? So I can only knock out two or three versions. But, I mean, for a crazy person like me, if I've got five days for a deadline or even two days for a deadline, I'll draw it as many times as I can. I've, I have sent in like seven versions of a finished piece of really? it. Trying it several different ways. But I'm giving them, you know, the same damn thing several times. I could show you some of those. It's... If we did an analysis of which one works best, which one gets published, yeah. is it usually a later one or not, or the first one, or is there a pattern? Oh, it's always the first one. Making your extra work all the more insane. Idiotic, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the second one, but really what you're looking for is life in the line, you know? So sometimes you'll do a drawing and oh, that doesn't look enough like Hillary and you draw it a second time. The second time it looks more like her, but the first time there was some magic or, or discovery in the actual line work and it's a better drawing and that's the one you use. Well, I guess if nothing else, you need to do the other ones to prove to yourself that the first one was the best. Exactly. Huh. People at the New Yorker often suddenly call you up and say, Barry, this news event happened. Do you have any ideas? Is that how it works? Well, I mean, I, I will pitch things without being called, but I think they call a number of artists when something happens and they want it to be featured on the cover or sometimes there's a mass email that goes out to a, a great many artists saying it would be really huh. great to do something about Purim or whatever's going on. Yeah, and you, did the, you do those beautiful Purim covers for the New Yorker, right. day, don't you? You reminded me when I walked in here today that back when I was uh, editing this magazine called Spy, we hired you. You did work I for did. us. I, I did uh, David Mamet Finger puppets. For, yes, you did. One of my favorite all-time things. That was. I mean, who gets assignments like that? That was fantastic. It was a. There were several David Mamet scripts that were boiled down. I guess. They, well, they no. There was the the, the the not yet great playwright David Ive who did his versions of essentially Mamet plays boiled down to a minute, and then we said, oh, let's create a whole like little cardboard stage and and finger puppets that so theoretically people could cut those out and enact these, and, and Barry Blitt, right. the young Barry Blitt, did these. Right, back when I was alive. Well, let's, let's look at some of this work. Uh, now this, talk about this. 
Okay. Well, obviously, this has a spy connection. And All right. Who, who came up with short-fingered vulgarian? We, it was a joint uh, coinage. I know. It's uh, got to come from somewhere. Uh, uh, where, where did it start? Graydon noticed that his fingers were short while we were starting to spy, and he profiled it for a magazine and said, you got to see this guy, Donald Trump. His fingers are tiny for a big guy. And then once we were coming up with epithets, and we went through like a dozen before we hit on short-fingered vulgarian, we said, eh, short-fingered vulgarian. Anyway, so this is a cover that this was is a sketch that became a cover for the New Yorker. Right. It was around the time when that started to rear its head again. I think it was Marco Rubio who right. mentioned it. And I, I guess I was trying to think of a way to to not just say he has small hands. I, I thought of a of a palm chart. And that's what this is. Is right. it's, it's 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 old fashioned, speaking of old timey, kind of palmistry readings of the lines on a hand. Right. His hand. You know, on his lifeline. He's saying he's going to live a long time, very healthy, in the line of intellect, you know, extensive, continues on back of hand. So, <laughs> Which made me laugh out loud. And it's in, as I think listeners will understand, in Donald Trumpian uh, right. language. Right, patois or language, yeah. yeah. It isn't enough, you know, to say he's fat or he... Orange. Or orange, right. It's nice to do something with it. Yeah, no, this was just, it, you know, it, it, doesn't, it, no, it doesn't say Donald Trump. Anywhere, it's just it's no. just a hand with stubby fingers and these and these Trumpian lines right. explaining his heart line and his and your beautiful singing voice. You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let's look at the next picture you got here. If I kill you right now, uh-huh. uh huh. In addition to that story being uh, probably pretty big in the newspapers, the, your obituary would early on mention this, which is to say, this is maybe the most well known picture you've ever made. You think I would get an obituary in the Times? Oh, was... I guarantee it. Wow. It's almost worth it. So describe this yeah, uh, picture. This was called The Politics of Fear. Uh-huh. Uh, this was, I'm, I was still listening to Rush Limbaugh at the time, and I was hearing lots of terrorist fist bump. Summer of 2008. I mean, there was just so much hatred in the air, it seemed like. And it seemed like a funny, I, funny way to just draw it all. And people were saying, oh, Barack Obama is friends with terrorists, meaning Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Right. And at the same time, there was supposedly some... Secret video of Michelle exactly. Obama talking about Whitey. Exactly. All false, all fantasy. Right. And I, I scribbled out something like this, a black and white drawing of it. First, I had Barack Obama as a dressed, like, I guess like a terrorist, like a Muslim terrorist. I, uh, and, and then he's with, and they're in the Oval Office, and then here's uh, Michelle. There's Michelle dressed like an Angela Davis-type militant, I guess you would say, and there's the American flag. Well, except I don't know that Angela Davis ever wore an AK-47 in Bandelier, which Michelle Obama is doing in this picture. Probably not. And there's an American flag in the in the fireplace. In the fireplace burning, and there's a uh, Osama bin Laden's photograph or a painting hanging in the Oval Office. And there was even a Nazi plate that I had that, that's come off. Huh. That was there, too. I mean, I really wanted to go over the top with this yeah. thing. There it the, is. The idea being, it was your version of all this crazy caricature of the yeah. Obama. And that seemed to be enough. That seemed to be enough of a joke. It made me laugh. And, and Francoise was... Francoise Mouly being Francoise the art director of The New Yorker. Of the yeah. New Yorker. You know, God bless her, was... Gung ho! This is a this, this will put the lie to all this stuff, and uh, to my amazement, you know, we were, I got the go ahead, you know, and I could hardly believe it. I, it it didn't seem like it was real that it would actually happen. What, was there any concern by David Remnick or any the other editors there? Of, Ooh, th this might get us some backlash from the left. I'm sure there was some of that. Uh, this particular one, 
I remember I brought it. It was so late that I brought it in myself. To, uh, my son and I went into New York City, and I brought it to the magazine, and Francoise and I walked over to the production department, and the production guy's face, when he looked at it, I mean, he turned white, and, and uh, I, yeah, I, I did. I, I expected some kind of backlash, but not, not as much of it as there no, was. No, and the, the thing is, it's an image that could run on a conservative magazine, like the National View or the, or the uh, Weekly Standard, it would still be a joke, but it would be a joke coming from the right, saying, ah, this is what we think of well, these yeah. people. Context is everything. I mean, Rush Limbaugh had it on his website with himself at an easel. Oh, really? Painting it, yeah. Uh, talk about the reaction. The reaction was, I mean, it was instant. I was, I was high, and I was playing music with a friend on a Sunday evening, and the magazine, I think, goes out to, to the media on Sunday before it hits the newsstands on Monday. But Sunday evening, I started to get calls and emails about it. Huffington Post was the first. They asked me if I regretted it. And I was, uh, I don't know, it hasn't come out yet. Let me see if I regret it. And, and, and then it was just everywhere. My e- email box filled up at 1,000. I think that's the, uh, the maximum you can have in AOL. And it was just, it was, seemed to be all over the world. You're an AOL guy, by the way? I am still an AOL guy. I was paying for it old until, timey, a, old timey, until very a few blood. years ago. I realized you didn't have to pay for it. Oh, you're cute. You're like thank a you. really <laughs> old person. I am. Thank you. Uh, and, and that kept going. I mean, there was serious, this, this became an object of serious conversation in the national discourse, whether yeah. you should have done it, whether the New Yorker should have done it. What does this mean? It's and I, I assume you have no regret whatsoever. Oh, I have regrets about everything. But not but the this, regrets you're supposed to have, like, I wish I didn't do that. You know what? My regrets here, I wish the, the fire in the fireplace was more convincingly rendered. I wish it was drawn a little bit better. That's my, those are my regrets. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was an interesting thing to live through. Yes. Uh, do you, what do you listen to as you're working? I'm a bad piano player. Wow, and there's a keyboard. It's a great little Nord Electro, which is, weighs 15 pounds. You can put it on your back. Really? If you wanted to, play it's it handsome as well. So it you is. you play that. I play that, and it's made uh, listening to music while I work difficult because you hear something and you want to play along with it. So and, and and I read, I believe, in your book, in this glorious new book of yours, that you listen to Rush Limbaugh as well. It's been a while since I've listened to Rush, but when I first got to the states, it was when he was first on the radio, and I'd never in the late eighties, late eighties, and I'd never heard anything like it. I listened to him, and there was Bob Grant. I listened to. I was on the Bob Grant show. Once. Were you? Yeah, he was also he was a right wing New York radio guy. Crazy. Yeah. Did, did he? Was he nice to you? Did he? Very. Wow. Told me I looked like Sylvester Stallone, which wasn't true even then. But uh, yeah, so I guess that was nice. That's that. really nice. Yeah. Um, well, as before, we leave your studio to talk in a different uh, venue in your home. Uh, play on this uh, Nord Electro Three something suitable. I don't I'm not sure what's suitable. It's got a nice Mellotron sound. This is sort of convincing. Take me down. You want to sing? No, 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 no. Please not. Let's all sing. We got everybody to. After our little jam session, we took a walk outside toward the woods. Apparently, Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman in this shack back here. I would call it not a shack. I would call it a shed. It's a shed. It's a writing shed. And he, the lore is that he built it himself with his own hands. He was good at this stuff. He was a mensch. 
and after he put the last nail into the roof, he brewed himself some coffee and wrote the first act of Death of a Salesman. He kicked it open, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. It smells like my mother's salmon cut. It smells like the death of a something in here. Does it? No. No, it's not death. A few windows and a very, very plain uh, yeah, desk built into the corner. I don't know if this desk was here. I know the electricity wasn't here when Arthur built it. Do you ever, you, you never use this, except I mean, I've, except when there are radio crews here and you show them. Oh, look, Arthur. No, I come up here sometimes. Really? I, sometimes I think if, if I'm stuck for an idea, maybe it'll you be You sit good. here and... Yeah, but nothing comes of it. And yeah. There's no internet up here, so it's, it's almost useless. Back inside Barry's house, I, I saw that he'd taken out the drawing for one of my all-time favorite New Yorker covers. It's, it's uh, Donald Trump... Uh, I guess you did this after he was president? Or? This is a, a crazy one, sort of. I did it after the Iowa caucus, I think, when he lost unexpectedly to Ted Cruz, and it looked like it was over. Right. Any slight right. you know, whiff of loss with him, right. it, it seemed like it was over. Yes. And the picture is basically, it started to rain on him, and he's only catching wind of the fact that it's raining. He's got a little, one of his little paws, like palm upward, you know, feeling a drop on it, and his hair... You know, the architecture of his hair has all come down with the slightest bit of rain. He's like a sheepdog, and it's covered his face. So it's similar to the to the hand chart in a way as I'm, you know, taking a cheap shot at at his, you know, his his physiognomy or whatever. And and well, uh, his his ridiculous hair and architecture being the correct word to describe how that's done each day or each hour, for all I know. I, I, and so it's just it's suddenly his hair is just as as it would be if it suddenly were drenched I guess. in water. There probably should be some bald spots here. I think um, I, I was a little generous to him. I, I loved it. I, I just love this picture because it's mean, I suppose, but it's not savage. It's 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 still kind of charming, and and it's one of those things. Your your sensibility, your comic sensibility, seems to me to be so perfect for the New Yorker because it's because it isn't savage. Right. I mean, I'm. I'm mean to my loved ones. Well, that's enough. Somehow on paper, I I don't have the guts to do that. Yeah. Well, I could stay in this lovely house with the lovely Connecticut autumn breezes blowing through for the rest of the evening, but you probably would object to that. So before you kick me out, I'll leave. Barry Blitt, this has been a complete delight. You are a have been a hero of mine. It was great to talk to you about your work. Thanks. Gosh. Thank you so much. Sure you wouldn't don't want to record everything again? I think I could nail it the second time okay. around. Barry Blitt's new book, Blit, is now available wherever beautiful, charming, old-timey books are sold. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Flawed Gillette. And I am Kurt Anderson. You're a good straight guy. Thanks very much for listening. P.R.I. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, we're always going on and on about creativity. In fact, we don't know what we're talking about. When you start to study it and start to try to figure out what it is and specify its constituents, it becomes more and more and more confusing. Nobody agrees on what it is. The truth about creativity. That's next time in Studio 360. 